0: Good morning. Good morning. I am so glad that we can rejoice in the Lord. Wow, the choir is awesome this morning. We're starting a new series today, red, yellow, black, and white. If you were in Sunday school at all as a kid, you learned Jesus loves me, this I know. And probably the second song you learned was Jesus loves little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Remember that one? You think we could sing it a cappella? Let's try it. Red and yellow, black and white They are precious in his sight Jesus loves the little children of the world Perfect, you know it The truth of that song that we were teaching Is the kingdom of God is bigger Way, way bigger uh, than, Than probably what many of us, most of us, all of us Sometimes think in our little circle The kingdom of God is multinational Multi multicolored. It's a message for all people, for all time, in all circumstances. The kingdom of God is big. We're part of something big. And God is awesome and glorious and omnipotent and omnipresent and all knowing and all loving all the time, all kind. I, I, I like, you know, when we were preaching last week, or two weeks ago, when I was, I was gone last week, when Pastor Todd and I preached from from, and talking about in Flint and unpacking what that meant and, and how we are a part of our community. One of the passages we used, I can't remember if it was Todd or me, one of us, we, we, we quoted John's revelation of heaven, what heaven will be like. Remember that? It's in Revelation chapter seven, and John says this, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hand and they cried out in a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I love that passage. I mean, I really love that passage and I long for that day. Don't get hung up about robes, don't think, ah, oh, I just don't look good in white. Why, you know, why can't it be something more neutral? And khakis, why can't we just be wearing khakis? Why does that? I think that's not the point. The robes aren't the point. The robes are talking about it will be a place where it's pure and holy. A place no more of hang-ups and burdens. No more judging a person by the, by the color of their skin or the language they speak or where they're from or their experiences. Everybody together. Holding our palm branches. Remember the last time the Bible talks about people holding their palm branches was was the day we call Palm Sunday. When Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. And people were waving those palm branches, and we sang it this morning. Hosanna, Hosanna, they were shouting. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But that week that followed, Jesus didn't give anyone a free bread and fish lunch, and and he didn't heal everyone of all their diseases And the Romans were still in charge, and the religious authorities were still the boss. And by Friday, those people who were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, were now shouting, crucify him, crucify him. They were fickle. But this vision that John has of heaven, everybody, everywhere, every people, every tribe, every language, I can't wait to grab my palm branch and standing next to a brother or sister from who knows where, And maybe they speak a different language than I speak here. But we're all waving our branches together. Every tribe, every people, every language, every group, everywhere. Standing before the throne, singing and weeping and praising God. And saying, salvation belongs to the God and to the Lamb. What a great day. Think of the greatest worship service you have ever been in. Multiply it by, I don't know, a billion, 10 billion. You'll be scratching the surface. My point is the kingdom of God is bigger than our little circle, than our little tribe, than our familiar surroundings. In this series, is going to be an attempt to show that. The kingdom of God is bigger than the Church of the Nazarene. Now, I love the Church of the Nazarene. I'm starting a membership class on Wednesday. If you're not a member, I wish you would join us. Wednesday. This two is Wednesday. It's this Wednesday, next Wednesday. 6.30, come. I love the Church of the Nazarene. I'm a part of the Church of the Nazarene. I've been a part of the Church of the Nazarene. They're my people. And this church, if you come to membership class, it's not saying we're perfect. It's saying that this is our people. We're, you know, you're our family. But the kingdom of God is bigger, bigger, bigger than the Church of the Nazarene. I, I mean... I guess this is a disclaimer. I, there's going to be more people than Nazarenes in heaven. And when you get to the pearly gates, of St. Peter's there, he's not going to give you the secret Nazarene handshake. There's, there's not a secret Nazarene handshake. But, but it's bigger. There'll be more folks in heaven than Americans. There'll be more folks in heaven than, speak, than, than, than those that speak English. My, Panama, my Panamanian brothers and sisters tell me heaven that we're going to speak Spanish. I don't know if that's true or not. There'll be more folks in heaven than just white folks. This series red, yellow, black and white. We are precious in a sight. Regarding that, I get it. I'm a white guy speaking to mostly white folks. I get it. But this sermon is red and yellow, black and white. And we're going to look at people who are different from us in this series. People of color. The series kind of kind of is like, you know, Black History Month meets the Bible. That's what this is. And we'll be looking at different people of color. Now, here's another disclaimer before we get started. With a fair degree of certainty, we can say that there are uh, people of color mentioned in the Bible, black folks mentioned in the Bible, but, but the Bible doesn't explicitly identify anyone necessarily by their color. In fact, the only place where it sort of does is in Jeremiah 13 when it says, can an Ethiopian change his skin? And it's referring to his skin color. That's the only, only spot. Most of the folks in skin color is, is, is never hardly mentioned in the Bible. It's really, the, the point of the Bible is, is to talk about the salvation of mankind. We know that, right? And the vast majority of people in the Bible, they're not white, they're not black, they're, they're Middle Eastern, Semitic. So light brown, dark brown, maybe. And the point is, the condition of your heart, the content of one's character is what's important. That's the universal good news. But red and yellow, black and white, is saying we're we're recognizing that all folks need Jesus. So why focus, why focus on, on people of color in this series? That's a good question. Why spend a whole month looking at people in the Bible, people of color? I think because looking at them, looking at the contribution that they put to the story of God expands our view of the kingdom of God if we really want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, in Flint as it is in heaven, then we need to expand our view of the kingdom of God. Here's a problem. I remember as a kid in Sunday school, we had a picture on the wall, probably fourth, fifth grade, something like that, of David killing Goliath. And it was in mid, after David had thrown the stone, so kid David, you know, 10-year, 11-year-old boy, and the slingshot dangling from his hand, and Goliath in mid-fall... And the lesson, you know, for for fourth or fifth grade boys was, you know, you can defeat giants. No no, no giant is too tough for you. If you've got God on your side, you can defeat giants. You can defeat every one of them with just a slingshot. You can defeat giants. That's a good lesson. Nothing wrong with the lesson. But the boy, the boy David, the scrawny 10-year-old kid David, he had long, flowing, blonde hair. It looked, like, it looked like it was Thor without, you know, baby Thor, Junior Thor against Goliath. You know, he didn't have a hammer in his hand. He had a slingshot, but it was, you know, this long-flowing, blonde-haired kid. Listen, Dave, David was from the Middle East. He wasn't a Viking. He wasn't Thor Junior. He didn't have blonde hair. He probably had brown skin and black hair, just like every other kid. What's the big deal? The subtle message... And that picture is saying the kingdom of God is like people just like us. Well, no, it's not. The kingdom of God is bigger, bigger, bigger than that. So this series is gonna show how people of color in the Bible are part of the big story of the people of God and the story of God. And the first of these is a guy named Ebed Melech. Anybody ever heard of him, Ebed Melech? Ebed Melech, I feel like the teacher in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. crickets, crickets, crickets ebed Milek, ebed Milek, Ebed-Millik. His story is told in Jeremiah 38. Now, before we, we can't just jump into Jeremiah 38 without giving you part of the story. Jeremiah is not an optimistic, bubbly writer. Jeremiah um, is kind of a sad sack. He's kind of Eeyore. If you're a Seinfeld fan, he's George Costanza. That's, that's, that's Jeremiah. He wrote two books in the Bible, Jeremiah, of course, and the second book is the book of Lamentations. Now, if you've never read a word from either one of those books, you can probably figure out if a guy writes a book of laments, he's not a guy full of giggles and grins, and that's Jeremiah. In fact, Jeremiah is, is known as the weeping prophet, the crybaby, which I, I kind of like that because my brother always used to tell me I was a crybaby, so crybabies unite, and that's, that's Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Now, to get to Jeremiah 38, you need to understand the history, and so let me give you a very, very brief history lesson. As you know, the people of Israel had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and Moses led them out. Moses quickly discovered it was easier get than getting the people out of Egypt, which wasn't easy at all because, you remember, there was all the plagues and everything else. It was easier getting the people out of Egypt than getting Egypt out of the people. And what I mean by that is not location, it's, it's, it's a bent toward the Egyptian way of life. Remember, the Egyptians had hundreds of gods and all these puny little gods, and they had been there for 400 years. And so really, the whole story of the Old Testament is about these people who had been captives for 400 years, slaves for 400 years, got out of Egypt, but Egypt never really got out of them. And they constantly were turning back to phony gods and false gods, and over and over and over, the story of the Old Testament is how God sent, sent prophets and kings and people to tell them and to show them the way out. But the people never really got it. Eventually, they had kings, they had three, three kings in a row, Saul, David, Solomon. When Solomon died, the nation split into two nations, two people, civil war. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. And they continued this pattern of, of once in a while a good king or once in a while a prophet and once in a while turning back to God, but it seemed like every time there was a good king, there was a terrible king, more terrible than the last king that followed. And this happened over and over and over again to both nations, the nation to the north, Israel, the nation to the south, Judah. Eventually, the nation to the north, Israel, God had had enough. In the year 722, he allowed the Assyrians to come in and wipe them out. Jeremiah is prophesying, his prophecy is about 100 years after that. He begins in about 627. And he he prophesies for about over 50 years span. When he came to, to begin his prophecy, Josiah was the king in Judah. Josiah was a relatively good king. Josiah tried to institute reforms. The people weren't really uh, uh, allowing that so much, but Josiah tried. Eventually, Josiah died, and he was followed not by one bad king, but by three terrible, terrible, terrible kings. And that's when Jeremiah is writing. And Jeremiah really living the most of his life during these terrible, terrible king years. Not only were there terrible kings, but there was faithless preachers. There was false prophets. The nation was really in horrible shape. Jeremiah's name, some people think, means the, means the Lord throws. The Lord throws. Not like throws like Patrick Mahomes this afternoon in the Super Bowl, not a football. And not the Lord throws a tantrum, but it's more like the Lord throws down the gauntlet. That Jeremiah's name even implies that, that, that the Lord is, is done. That if they don't change their ways, if the people of Judah don't come back and return, the Lord is done. Something, Jeremiah's name means, thunderous denunciation. And and Jeremiah certainly was denouncing a lot. He was denouncing the evil kings. He was denouncing the false priests and prophets who were in cahoots with the evil kings. He was denouncing the rich people who were oppressing the poor people. He was denouncing the poor people for not turning to God. He was denouncing all the puny little gods. He even denounced God Almighty and wished that he was dead. And the people were sick and tired of his denouncing. They didn't like his message, and they wanted him dead more times than not. And, and Jeremiah, probably the, the height of his denunciation came in chapter 7 when he was denouncing uh, those that were in the temple. The people, the people, the religious leaders thought that God would never allow their, never allow Judah to be destroyed. Like like, like the north, the Israel had been destroyed by the Assyrians. He would never allow that because they had Jerusalem and they had the temple. And they, they, they were viewing the temple. I mean, they didn't do anything with God. They were doing all these terrible things. But they thought, ah, we've got the temple. And God will never allow us to be destroyed because we got the temple. It's like this was their the protective shield. And so Jeremiah in chapter 7 says this. Don't trust in deceptive words that say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. we got the temple. <laughs> if you really change your ways and your actions, and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, do not shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then, then, I will let you live in this place. They didn't listen. And just as a tangent, God hasn't changed. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what that means is God still cares about treating people justly. God still cares about not oppressing the foreigner. God still cares for orphans. God still cares for widows. God still is is caring for not shedding innocent blood. And God still doesn't want us to follow false and puny gods. And in our culture, there are hundreds of them. The ancient people of Judah didn't have anything on us. We have hundreds of false, puny gods. God hasn't changed. Same rules. But people didn't like Jeremiah's preaching. And so when he said the Babylonians were coming, the Babylonians were on the warpath now. The Assyrians were done away with. Babylonians wiped them out. And now they were coming for Judah. And Jeremiah said, they're coming after us. And people didn't like it, so they threw him in jail. And he said, listen, God's judgment is coming upon us, and he's going to use the Babylonians, and they're going to tear us to shreds, and they didn't like that either. So they threw him in a cistern. Uh, lucky for, for Jeremiah, the cistern was and the cistern, cisterns in the Middle Ages during those times, or in the, in the Middle East during those times, they were shaped like, think of it as a giant bell. There was a little opening at the top, just big enough to stuff a nosy prophet in, and, and, and it's shaped like a bell, and it contained water. Only the, the cistern that Jeremiah was shoved into didn't have any water, just mud. And so Jeremiah was like armpit deep in mud in a cistern. So just to review, he was a weeping prophet, crybaby prophet, and what he was crying about, he was begging, begging, begging the people to turn from their ways. And the people didn't listen. They didn't want to hear him preach. They didn't like the message he was preaching. The year is 586 now. So Jeremiah's been at it for about 41 years. The year 586, you should know, is the, is the year that Judah was destroyed by the Babylonians. So the circles have, have, have been, or the wagons have been circled, and the Babylonians are there. And Jeremiah's sitting in this cistern. In chapter 39, Jerusalem's going to be wiped out. That's a spoiler alert. If, you're, if you want to read ahead, I just spoiled it. 38 is where we're at. 30, all this has been previewed to, to where we're getting. And that's when our guy, remember him? Ebig Melech. That's where he comes into the story. The writing is on the wall. The city's about to be destroyed. They don't like Jeremiah, or they don't like his message, just like, like uh, uh, sometimes politicians even these days. When they know they're in trouble, when they see the writing on the wall, they look for a scapegoat. Who's the scapegoat? Who can we blame this on? It was the boohoo Jeremiah? They said he wasn't a patriot. He was a traitor. Here's the passage, Jeremiah 38. Let me read it for us. Shephatiah the son of Matan, and Gedaliah, that's a great name. Don't don't get a truth teller, Gedaliah, <laughs> son of Pashur. By the way, Gedaliah, he's the great grandson of the king. Jehuka, son of Shelamiah, Pashur, son of Melkaijah, Melkaijah is the is the grandson of the king. So get, this, is, this is the royal family coming to the king. His grandson, his great-grandson, other officials. This is what they say. They heard what Jeremiah was telling all the people when he said, this is what the Lord says. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague, but whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. They will escape with their lives, they will live. And this is what the Lord says. This city will certainly be given into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon who will capture it. Then the official said to the king, this man should be put to death. He's a traitor, king. He's a Benedict Arnold. Do you hear what he's telling the troops? They, say, they go on and say this. He is discouraging the soldiers who are left in the city, as well as all the people, by the things he is saying to them. This man is not seeking the good of these people, but their ruin. He's Tokyo Rose. Do you remember Tokyo Rose, you history buffs? Tokyo Rose during World War II was was used by the Japanese. Actually, there was more than one Tokyo Rose uh, in the South Pacific, and she would go on the radio, and she would tell the U.S. troops, give up, you can't make it. The the Japanese are gonna win. You might as well lay down your weapons. Stuff like that, propaganda. That's what they're saying. That's who Jeremiah, he's Tokyo Rose. He's a traitor. He's a Benedict Arnold. He's the worst. We gotta kill him. And the wishy-washy king says this. He's in your hands. The king can do nothing to oppose you excuse me you're still the king Uh, you're the king you're the guy granted he won't be the king very long because chapter 39 but right now you're the king so verse 6 so they took Jeremiah and put him into the cistern of Malchijah, the king's son which was in the courtyard of the garden they lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern it had no water in it only mud and Jeremiah sank into the mud I was on a cruise ship last week and one of the comedians did all these noises. I wish I could do those. I don't know what the noise is. You know, he'd do like glass breaking and, this, and the helicopter coming. I can't do that. I wish I could do one for a, for a, a loudmouth prophet being sunk into the mud. I don't know what it would be. What, is, what noise does the, mud, does the mud make? I don't know. So the cistern's full of mud. Jeremiah is his armpit deep for his crime, his crime is telling the truth. Sometimes that happens to prophets. People in power don't always like to hear the truth, they like yes men. They like people who tell them what they wanna hear, how great they are, but the prophet told the truth. It happened then, it happens sometimes now. Verse seven, finally, all this, whew, we get to the good part. But, except for, here comes the hero, Ebig Melek, a Cushite. Ebig Melik means, means uh, a king's servant. Cushite means he's from the land of Cush. Where's the land of Cush? That's modern day Ethiopia. We already talked about how Jeremiah said Ethiopians have different color skin. Ethiopia, he's the black guy. Ebig Melek, Cushite, black dude, an official in the royal palace. He's not a slave, he's an official he's going to have an audience with the king. You can't do that just if you're a nobody. He's, he's an official, our hero, Ebigmelech, official in the royal palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the cistern. While the king was sitting at Benjamin's gate, Ebigmelech went out of the place and said to him, my lord, the king, these men have acted wickedly. Remember, he's talking about the king's family. This isn't just two, you know, thugs from the wherever. This is the king's family, he's saying they have acted, not just that they, they, you know, they made a slight mistake, no they have acted wickedly, these guys are bad and all they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, they have thrown him in a cistern where he will starve to death when there is no longer any bread in the city then the king commanded Melek, the Cushite, did you forget he's from Cush, he's an Ethiopian, he's the black dude take 30 men from here with you and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies why take 30 men with him Obviously, this is not a covert mission. This is not a secret mission. 30 men, I'll go to Jeremiah in the cistern. So, verse 11. So, Ebigmelech took the men with him and went to the room under the treasury in the palace. He took some old rags and worn out clothes from there. And he let them down with ropes to Jeremiah in the cistern. Ebigmelech, the Cushite, again, if you forgot, he's from Cush, the Ethiopian, the black guy, said to Jeremiah, put these old rags and worn out clothes under your arms to pad the ropes. Jeremiah did so. And they pulled him up with ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. Three times in this short passage, the writer points out that Ebigmelik, our hero, is from Cush, Ethiopian, black guy. That's really a rather strange thing to say in such a short passage. If you were to say, "Oh, there's Rob Prince. He grew up in Garden City. That's where he was born and raised. Garden City, Michigan. That's Rob Prince." You would you would say that once. I mean, this is a short passage. You wouldn't say it three times. You wouldn't say, oh, did you know our our middle school pastor, youth pastor, is Joey Wood. He's from Alabama. He really loves Jesus. He loves our kids. He's Joey Wood from Alabama. Did you know he is a great guy? I just think he's doing a wonderful job. He's Joey Wood from Alabama. Why would you say it? He wouldn't say that three times. But the author here must really want us to know. Ebig Melik. he's from Cush. He's not saying... He's not saying, oh, I'm color, I don't see any colors." No, he's pointing it out three times. I see very well where he's from. You know, to see a person, to really see a person, it makes, it, it goes deeper, it goes deeper than just a passing view or glance. To really see a person, to really know a person, you have to see where they're from, m- know who they are, what makes them tick. It's saying, I acknowledge that your experiences may be different from my experiences. And pointing out the, the, the color of Ebig Melech, the author is saying, his experiences as a Kushite, as an Ethiopian, as a black guy, they may be different from my experiences. There's some lessons we can learn in this story. Ibig Melek was a man who displayed tremendous courage He went to the king, told the king, hey, your family, they're wicked. Your family, they put Jeremiah, the only guy willing to stand up and speak for the truth, in a cistern full of mud. They're wicked. Listen, we need truth-tellers today. We need folks who are willing to speak the truth, to stand up for the truth, even if it means no monetary gain or no political gain or no status gain. There comes a time when we have to take a stand It may not be safe, it may not be politically correct, but we need to stand for the truth. It's time to do the right thing. Martin Luther King Jr. said, the time is always right to do the right thing. He is correct. You may have heard that we're living in a post-Christian era. What that means is is that the Christian majority is no longer the majority. What that means is that Christian values, relying on Scripture as authority, holding on to biblical truths, might not always be the popular choice in our culture. But that does not mean that we change our views of Scripture just because others don't agree with what the Scripture says. Does that make sense? God's word hasn't changed. Jesus was saying, listen, this is good news to the poor. Poor people... Poor people are important and significant. And here then Jesus says, the best thing he says, and I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Leviticus 25, jubilee. That means that we are restored. The oppressed are restored. The poor are restored. There is recovery for those who have been treated unjustly. I'm here to proclaim that there's a new world order about. It's called the kingdom of God, and it is possible. God's word always has been, always will be. Lord, we are so thankful that no one is too far gone from your love. You have the power to lift anyone out of the mud and set them on a solid rock. And we pray, Lord, that you would use us. Help us to be your people. Because, Lord, we want to see your kingdom come and your will done right here in this place as it is in heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.